0: The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app.
1: Mutant housing block facing demolition just one year after completion. As party conference season begins, Rishi Sunak U-turns on key net zero policies, outrage over the felling of Northumberland's iconic sycamore gap tree, and is Britain really a nation of drivers? My name is Finn Harp, I'm an architecture critic, and we will be interrogating this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. This is a remote recording. I'm live from the Aylesbury Estate in South London. My guest this week is Joe Giddings. Joe is an architect UK leader built by nature and was a co-founding member of the Architects Climate Action Network or ACAN. Welcome to the show, Joe.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Greenwich Council in South London has ordered the complete demolition of what one councillor describes as a, quote, mutant development towering above the Thames Riverfront. The AJ reported that after counting 26 major deviations from the original planning permission, the council said that Mast Key Phase 2, a Coma Homes development completed last year, was, quote, poor quality and has ordered the developer to pull it down. The development on the south bank of the River Thames in Woolwich consists of two residential tower blocks, one of which is stepped with 23, then 11, then 9, then 6 storeys and many of the 204 apartments are already occupied and residents now face the prospect of finding somewhere else to live. The council says the scheme significantly differs from designs approved more than a decade ago with deviations including bulkier final towers, changes to materials and cladding with less. Less glazing, lower quality flats including steps up to the balconies in supposedly accessible apartments the balconies are also smaller Uh, a roof terrace has been removed in addition the proposed underground car park was never built and as a consequence surface level car parking covers land which was earmarked for public gardens and children's play areas Greenwich Council's extensive investigation of the build to rent tower following on from numerous complaints from locals concluded that the development was in their view unlawful Aidan Smith, cabinet member for Regeneration, said, quote, if a scheme matching what has been built at Mast Key Phase 2 was submitted for planning permission today, it would be refused. We cannot let what has been delivered at Mast Key Phase 2 go unchallenged. Homes said it would appeal the demolition order saying quote it was surprised and extremely disappointed by the council's decision and the accompanying public statements which it says are quote inaccurate and misrepresent the position and our actions hmm. so joe what's all this about why have all these changes been made between planning permission getting granted and the building actually being built
0: Yes. Well, I think this is a very interesting story, particularly off the back of the decision by Michael Gove earlier this year to um, block the demolition of a prominent building on Boxford Street, the the and And that decision was made obviously all uh, be- because of the embodied carbon in the development. Uh, I think with this particular battle in Greenwich, it's a battle which I don't really think that there's a good guy. Both the council and the developer have acted badly, and they've made decisions that seem to neglect both the lives of people living in and around the building and the environment. Um, and it's notice to the developer, the council called for quote, the complete demolition of the building. And it's this decision from the council, which I think is particularly kind of wasteful and counterproductive, but clearly the scheme built by the developer deviates significantly from what they gained. Planning permission for, and so I don't think they can be allowed to get away with that. If you just look at the the kind of side by side images of of what was proposed and what was built, you get a sense of how far they've they've gone here. But in addition to the visual differences, there's actually quite a lot of structural differences too. The buildings are actually bigger than than were approved. Uh, the quality of residential accommodation inside the building is lower than, than what was proposed uh, and they haven't provided roof gardens or landscaping outside either so it's clear that the council needs to do something but i think complete demolition is not the answer
1: yeah okay so i sort of i, I see what you're saying that um you know d- demolishing it is uh a, is a very big deal i think the council kind of agree with that one cabinet member from the council described the enforcement action as unprecedented themselves but like, what are the alternatives if 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 demolishing it is not the right approach? What else could the council do to sort out this 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 problem and also to discourage other developers in the future?
0: Well, some of the other suggestions that I've seen uh, on social media and in other articles include uh, handing out a gargantuan fine to the developer, uh, taking the building into public ownership, and using it for social housing. Or um, somebody suggested removing the, the developer's license entirely to build homes, and Coma Homes are a fairly large developer and housing owner, so that would be a, a, a significant blow to them. But I think that there is a, a much more kind of straightforward way to remediate this. I think what we're really talking about here, in environmental terms, is the cost carbon cost of, of building a building. So looking at materials such as aluminium glass steel concrete that have been used to build the current building the carbon cost of those is very high so looking at this in purely carbon terms for a, for a second the best thing to do would be to retain as much of the existing building that's the completed building as possible and to remediate that in a way that is both acceptable to uh, well the council but um i suppose also the the developer and importantly the people that are actually going to live in the building. So what you could do for example is take off the external facade and reclad the building. the facade probably accounted for around 15 percent of the carbon footprint of the original construction. that's according to benchmarks set by um, set by letty for, for this type of building whereas the superstructure and the foundations combined were probably around 60 to 70 percent of the carbon footprint. So if you retain the superstructure, and remediate the building by taking off the facade and recladding it, you, you've saved a hell of a lot of the carbon of completely demolishing it and rebuilding it.
1: So LETI is a sort of energy production organisation, is that right?
0: Yes, LETI is the Low Energy okay. Transformation Initiative that used to be called the London Energy Transformation Initiative. So they do a lot of re- okay. research into both operational and embodied carbon of buildings. Yeah.
1: Now, I guess I guess it's just a question of um you know the council's between a rock and a hard place because this 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 developer has seemingly pulled a fast one built this enormous thing and they have to not let that precedent stand and if you're saying that oh well one solution could be to just sort of tweak it by redoing the facade then what is to stop other developers in the future Doing exactly the same thing, building kind of uh, awful developments that depart radically from planning permission, because they have the confidence that when it comes to the crunch, uh, campaigners such as yourself will say, "Oh well, you know, we shouldn't actually make them demolish it. They should just be made to sort of, you know, tweak, tweak the balconies or, or, or redo some of the cladding." Surely that could uh, that could snowball to a really bad situation where the whole planning system effectively becomes meaningless because developers can just build whatever the hell they like. And then councils maybe will make them adjust it later if they're feeling muscular.
0: Yes, that is a very good point. But I would kind of counter that with the fact that the the cost of the remediation works would be significant for the developer and the, the council could additionally levy uh, a huge fine onto the developer in addition to the cost of remediating the building. I, I think a lot of people have pointed out that the decision by the council to try and enforce the The demolition is actually just a stick to get the developer around the table uh, and that they won't actually eventually force the developers to do that. But what this will do is bring them to the table so they can have a discussion about um, what to actually do with, with the building. Wow.
1: So interestingly, Robert Booth, writing in The the Guardian, he's the social affairs correspondent, described this as actually, quote, a rare triumph for planners and said it was a, an extraordinary demonstration of strength from um, the town hall enforcement offices in what is a very unequal battle between these kind of major developers like Comer Homes and these cash-strapped council planning departments. So, um pointed to some data that last year a survey of 103 councils across the UK uh, found that 90% of them had uh, backlogs on these kind of enforcement actions where you, you demand developers make changes after they've built something that didn't have proper planning permission and that 80% of those councils didn't have enough officers to get through the workload of these uh, these enforcement backlogs Meanwhile, the number of enforcement notices is falling from 5,000 in 2015-16 to less than 4,000 now, which could mean that developers are sort of doing what they're told, doing what they've got planning permission for, or potentially it can mean that councils are just giving up on challenging it when something gets built without planning permission in the first place. So I'm interested in sort of zooming out for a second and asking you, you know, what this story says about the tension between planners and developers at large. You know, wh- why do some developers attempt to break the rules? And do you think the situation is getting better or
0: worse? I think that developers actually get a bit of a bad name in all of this. I'm not defending Coma Homes. I think they've uh, acted terribly, but um, most of them are actually out to do the right thing. But, but they're very unpopular in public opinion. But um, I think you're right to point out that this is as much a story about how our planning system has actually been underfunded and unreformed for such a long time. It says a lot, I think, about how ineffectual the planning process has been that it's got to this point. The design of this building and the, the details of this building should have been agreed through condition. And I'm sure that they were. Attempted to be agreed through condition, and what what that is, it means that the the planning department will place conditions on the developer after the initial planning permission is given, and that the developer needs to comply with those conditions by providing further details of what the building will actually look like before they actually start building it. So. Presumably, if that process works, it means that you end up with a detailed building design which is approved by the council and then then built. And clearly, something has gone wrong here. And I wonder whether it's all about uh, the the kind of planning department kind of um, wanting to to rush this through as well. I think that there's a there's another kind of point that comes into this, which is about the kind of wider reform of the planning system. So the government has been trying for years and years to to, to reform the planning um, system, and Currently, it's got its levelling up and regeneration bill, which is going through the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It's in the final stages, and this will potentially strengthen the role of things like design codes and local plans set by councils. But it remains to be seen whether the changes will actually have a positive or or negative impact. Um, They were partly proposed to, quote, emphasise the role of beauty. But when they were first introduced, they were heavily criticised because they seemed to remove quite a lot of power or or some teeth from the local planning process and from local people specifically. So it's possible that the changes might actually result in more developments like this.
1: Um, let's Let's talk a little bit about the human dimension to all of this because there are people living in this place and when the Guardian went to interview them, It found that a number of tenants, these are all renters, uh, had not been notified that this sort of fight was brewing and that this decision to uh, demand a a demolition um, had been made. So, you know, you've got all these people who who've already had their kind of their, their garden turned into a car park, their roof terrace scrapped, their windows and balconies shrunk now the developers not even talking to them about the fact that their their homes might be getting demolished how on earth is this legal how is it legal to treat people this badly and what needs to change in the sector regardless of questions of kind of beauty or or whether or not there's a local plan to just to, to make it possible that people are treated with respect rather than kind of total contempt
0: yeah i mean anybody that lives in london like like i do will will recognise that there's a There's a pretty extreme kind of rental crisis at the moment, and um, people are pretty desperate to find any kind of rented accommodation. So I'm not surprised that the developer was able to fill this building. Um, I think what's quite interesting is that the council has actually pointed out that they advised the developer not to let the flats out whilst there was an investigation ongoing. So I think a lot of the blame actually here does lie with the developer Coma homes, and clearly they are going to have to rehome all of the people that they're going to have to boot out of this building if they, if it comes to that. Looking at Greenwich more widely, there's actually 27,000 people on the housing waiting list in Greenwich. So there's a real shortage and I'm sure there would be risk of homelessness for some of those evicted. I think it's a really serious situation. I think the responsibility here lies with both Greenwich and Comer Homes really to just collectively make sure that all of those people are rehoused if it comes to it.
1: In recent weeks, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has announced a swathe of climate policy U-turns in a move that which has been condemned by scientists, environmentalist groups, business lobbyists, trade unionists, politicians and even car manufacturers. The overhaul of policies designed to help the UK reach its legally binding net zero target of 2050 has received extensive coverage across the media. The Prime Minister is abandoning or scaling back core parts of his government's climate strategy, which the Climate Change Committee, that's the government's independent advisors on cutting carbon emissions, has already warned were, quote, worryingly slow. The shock announcement details plans to push back the ban of sales of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035, loosening the phase out of gas boilers and scrapping planned regulations on minimum energy efficiency standards for landlords. The FT said the moves meant, quote, the world has lost faith in the UK's green ambitions and published an article this week detailing how Sunex's dramatic U-turn has triggered the collapse of the UK's carbon price, which has fallen to just £36 per tonne, a value less than half of that in the EU. So carbon prices are part of this trading system that intends to sort of reduce emissions internationally. They essentially set out energy prices that companies and manufacturers must pay for every tonne of CO2 that they emit. So a fall in a UK carbon price poses serious risk to British decarbonisation as polluters will effectively get to emit more carbon more cheaply than they would have done otherwise. And this all comes as the EU's imminent carbon border tax is expected to come into effect, which is an an initiative designed to punish countries with low carbon costs relative to the bloc. So as a result, the FT has warned that this could mean that British exporters, such as wind farms, could actually end up spending billions of pounds sending it to the EU rather than to the UK Treasury. So um, potentially bad for business and disastrous for the climate. Uh, Joe, what's your reaction to Sunok's announcements the other week you know just sort of what's your hot take from all of this kind of uh, slew of um changes to what were already not massively ambitious green targets
0: yes well the purpose of the speech was to present what sunak's government has branded a new approach to net zero and the speech included a number of policy announcements the speech represented a new political strategy from the conservative party which sees them attacking Net zero and environmental regulations more broadly, and taking what they brand as quote long term decisions for a brighter future, but which I think the rest of us can probably see are just short term decisions which they think will win them the next election. On the details of the speech itself, I think it's fair to say there were both good and bad things in the speech. I'll start with the with the good. They did confirm that they're going to lift the band on onshore wind, and I think this is is positive they also announced that the boiler upgrade scheme which gives people cash grants to replace their boilers will be increased by 50 percent to 7500 pounds finally he also did say that the government's not actually reconsidering the overall target so i think that's good but alongside those they obviously rode back on a number of policies which you've already mentioned so the energy efficiency standards pushing back the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars and a delay to the gas boiler phase-out. I think the broader picture here is that it's abundantly clear that the government is now using net zero as a wedge, and by that I mean trying to create a clear dividing line with the Labour Party. So To me, it looks like we're headed to an election in 2024 in which net zero will be a major battleground. And for anybody that cares about addressing the climate crisis, no matter which party you support, I think this is really unfortunate because net zero has been one issue around which there's been general cross-party support over the last five years. So the concept of net zero hasn't been politicized that much until now.
1: It's an odd wedge because who's going to vote for more expensive heating bills. That just seems like a really kind of (laughs) bad political platform. So analysis from the carbon brief earlier this year found that energy bills are now £10 billion higher than they would have been if climate policies such as energy efficiency support weren't rolled back or scrapped over the last decade. Um, Do you think in 10 years' time we'll see a similar thing as a result of Sunak's policy changes?
0: We will see in the next decade that some of these changes will cost people money. And I think it's worth diving into one of the policies, particularly in a bit more detail, to help explain why. And that's the scrapping of the enhanced minimum energy efficiency standards. So these were first introduced in 2015 and provided that private rental property in England and Wales must have an EPC rating of E or above. Uh, they came into force on the 1st of April, 2018, and the proposed changes would have meant that in 2025, that rating would have had to jump up to EPC C, and it would have forced landlords to spend up to £10,000 to achieve this. So who does this affect? Well, if we look at the tenure of housing across the country, the, the Office of National Statistics says that nationally, 20% of the population lives in the private rental sector, so one in five people, and in London, this goes up to 30 percent and once you add in people in the social rented sector, you actually have a total of uh, around forty percent of the population in, in rented accommodation. So anybody um, like me and like many others um, who live in rented accommodation will know that they are powerless to make changes to to their house. It's actually the landlord that is responsible for this but you will also know that it's extremely rare for for a landlord to make those upgrades unless they're forced to. So what this will do over the long term is mean that people's energy bills will stay high because the energy efficiency of the house will stay low and um citizens advice bureau have actually pointed out that this policy ends up costing people on lower incomes more because people on lower incomes are disproportionately living in rented housing. So no surprise. Uh, this particular part of the speech was the most unpopular. There's some interesting UGov polling that was uh, conducted in the days after the speech, which showed that around 60% of people opposed that policy specifically.
1: So, Joe, one of the things that's sort of striking about this I was looking at more analysis from the Carbon Brief, who are kind of dedicated news site looking at uh, carbon and climate um, stories. Is the the Prime Minister seemingly using false or inaccurate statements when describing these uh, anti net zero changes? For example, in his speech, he falsely claimed that some homes will never ever be suitable for a heat pump, uh, which is not true. <laughs> a lot of architects. understand that Uh, he also claimed to be scrapping a meat tax which never existed in the first place so what is going on there why scrap a tax that doesn't exist um what could that slip or that sort of that remark tell us about the real agenda here um in your opinion
0: Yes well it's peculiar isn't it that the government is using policies that that never existed to to try and increase public support for their changes to policies that that did exist and and I do think that it's a little bit fear mongering, perhaps for me the broader point about comms uh, about climate comms in in particular is that we need to kind of shift the narrative completely from what we might need to lose from our lives towards what we might gain. So to shift the narrative towards solutions, so towards improving our lives. And I think this is all about upgrading our infrastructure and upgrading our homes. The energy that's paid by all of us individually, you and me and everybody listening to this podcast, means that we have very high energy bills. Now imagine that our homes hardly used any energy at all. And we have examples that demonstrate that. So in Norwich, in the Goldsmith Street, scheme that won the sterling prize a couple of years ago energy bills are as low as a hundred pounds for the whole year and in my home i uh, me and my housemates we pay that much per month so if we can start to shift the narrative towards the idea that we will be saving uh, a lot of money and that all of our energy bills will be as low as a couple of hundred pounds a year i think then the transition becomes about improving the lives of everyone so then to come back to Some of the themes that were in Sunak's speech about scrapping meat taxes and stopping people flying, I think all of this communication is framed negatively and no wonder it's going to make people very afraid of, of the changes to come. So we just need to shift it completely towards something more positive, I think.
1: One of the UK's best-loved and most recognised trees was illegally felled last week, provoking an outpouring of tributes, outrage and grief from people up and down the UK. The landmark tree at Sycamore Gap, which stood beside Hadrian's Wall in Northumberland for more than 300 years, was cut down overnight on Wednesday last week, and has left locals fearing tourism in the area could dry up. A 16-year-old boy and a man in his 60s were both arrested on suspicion of criminal damage last week. Both have since been released. On bail pending further inquiries. Ideas of how to commemorate the iconic sycamore have been flooding social media, a memorial bench made from the timber. Uh, replacing the tree with a, a larger forest, even a sculpture of the tree are some of the ideas which have been floated. One man actually planted a young sycamore sapling near the site, which the National Trust has since removed. So two trees have been felled in the location. With only four of the seven trees of the year from between 2014 and 2020 still standing, including the sycamore gap tree, this tragic story has demonstrated the vulnerability of the UK's trees, even those that British people seemingly love the most. Currently, local planning authorities have the ability to award tree preservation orders to individual trees, which can incur fines of up to £20,000 if they are felled without permission. However, conservationists are calling for much more expansive legal protection. A recent YouGov poll found that 83% of Britons support giving ancient trees legal heritage status, a bit like listing a building, perhaps. And 85% think the government or its agencies should be responsible for protecting ancient trees. So, Joe, how do we make sense of this? A random act of vandalism, uh, some sort of political protest, perhaps, against the National Trust, maybe? Is this uh, a grumpy person who doesn't like tourists and is trying to stop them coming to the area? What, what on earth do you think motivated someone to, to chop down this tree?
0: That is a very good question. I've got absolutely no idea what would motivate somebody to chop down a tree like this. I just think it's a very sad story. And um, yeah, I think that trees are very special to us as as humans, to, to all of us. And we actually, you know, if we go all the way back to to the beginning of the human race, we actually evolved from a tree dwelling species. And then when grasslands appeared, we we learned how to walk upright, to move across the open plains between trees and from then. Until now, we, we've lived in a symbiotic relationship with trees and forests. And although this has waned a bit in recent years, I think even now we, we all hold immense personal relationships with trees. And for me, it's either the eucalyptus tree that's in my garden at the moment that I look out at every day fluttering in the wind, or the the willow tree that I I kind of grew up with in my uh, in my childhood home which I would climb to the top of and look over the top of my house uh, as soon as I got high enough so so we've all got these stories and and trees are part of our lives and you know even the conservative party logo is a tree but then some trees attain legendary status and this sycamore was uh, apparently one of those i never visited it personally but this was a a kind of icon of the north and in fact people on social media have compared this tree to the angel of the north so i don't think it's its cultural significance can be overstated and i think it would take uh yeah particular kind of person to to go out there with a chainsaw in the in the dead of night and chop it down but I think the reason that this story has actually captured so much attention is partly because of the manner of its, of its felling, which led to a really intense feeling of grief for a lot of people. It was felled overnight by chainsaw with a very clean cut on an apparently dark and stormy night when locals sen- said the winds were, were very loud so you couldn't hear the sound of the felling. and Then in the morning, the tree lay on its side like a corpse, and it was difficult to look at those images without feeling... Almost like a national treasure or a family member had been murdered, I felt. And uh, of course, the, the nature of those images has then sparked uh, the almightiest of whodunits, looking for the person that that did it.
1: It has sparked an enormous outcry. W- why is it that the felling of this one tree? All right, it's a very pretty tree, but actually, most trees are, are very pretty if you if you take a moment to look at them. Why is the felling of this single tree caused such a reaction? When deforestation just sort of goes on as a matter of course and no one seems to to care particularly.
0: I mean, I was reading an article by one or two professors in physical geography at, at Northumbria. So they said in an article for the conversation that, quote, the sheer dominance of pastures and open farmland near Hadrian's Wall led to this one sycamore be becoming an icon of Northumberland in part because of the relative rarity of trees on the landscape so it's it's because it was standing alone in in the land surrounded by open grassland that was grazed by sheep that meant it became so iconic but the landscape there is uh, what a lot of people would call very degraded actually and uh, you know you're talking about deforestation that occurs around the world today well we deforested uh, the uk a very long time ago we we've actually got one of the kind of lowest forest coverages in the whole of Europe we've got around 13% of forest coverage here in the UK where the average in, in the rest of Europe is more like 30 percent
1: what would you like to see to memorialize this tree or to sort of um, what, what should go in in this place should anything go there should we just leave the stump should there be a regulatory change that becomes the sycamore gap rule and makes it harder to chop down trees in the future what do you think is the right response to this specific situation.
0: Yeah, well, I, I saw that Brian Blessed, the uh, actor that played Robin Hood in that kind of famous film that was that was um, shot here in the sycamore gap, uh, made a very impassioned kind of plea on social media. And he said, the tree's not dead. The tree's not actually dead. The, so the stump itself could regrow and sycamore as a species is one that can be coppiced. So even though it's cut all the way down to the stump, in theory, the tree should be able to, to regenerate from that stump, and in a hundred years' time, it will be a similar kind of size to, to the one that we we had until recently. I think um some of the proposals for the site are nice, but I think maybe a bit unambitious. I think it would be great to see that whole area rewilded, reforested. I'm a big believer in kind of rewilding our landscape. So I think it really should encompass that much wider. Uh, conversation about about the state of our landscapes what, whatever is proposed here
1: fantastic although brian blessed actually played lord Loxley, it was kevin costner who played robin hood the son of lord Loxley. so you know important to get your 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 facts right uh, joe come on <laughs> our final story is that As the Conservative Party conference draws to a close, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has announced plans to, quote, slam the brakes on anti-motorist measures by clamping down on 20mph speed limits, bus lanes and low-traffic neighbourhoods, or LTNs, according to reports in The Guardian this week. The Prime Minister claimed his pro-traffic measures are in response to what he calls a, quote, war on motorists. But active travel campaigners say the PM's agenda will come at the expense of other road users, such as bus passengers, cyclists and pedestrians questions. <laughs> Despite being framed as a consultation, the Guardian newspaper noted the distinct shift in transport policy, which seemingly flies in the face of previous efforts to reduce road congestion through improving alternative transport infrastructure. The plans headed up by Number 10 and the Department for Transport appear to target speed limits, designated bus lanes, LTNs and traffic violation fines by making it more difficult for local authorities to introduce traffic calming measures across the country. The new plans will review guidelines surrounding 20 mile per hour limits, road features which have been shown to reduce deaths and serious injuries, especially among vulnerable road users such as children. Similarly, guidance will be amended around LTNs, with the Department for Transport stressing that there should be a, quote, focus on local consent, but giving no further details. This latest review comes on top of an existing review into LTNs, something we covered back in the July on this show. Uh, Ministers have also announced there will be a review of guidance on dedicated bus lanes, which they plan to allow more cars and motorbikes to use, only excluding uh, non-bus vehicles, quote, when necessary. Uh, This measure has already been condemned by the organisation that kind of represents UK bus companies and has been strongly opposed by cycling groups um, for obvious safety reasons. So, you know, Rishi Sunak has announced this all by calling the UK, quote, a nation of drivers. Is that statement true uh, across the countryside in London? Uh, and why are we in a country where trains were invented so reliant on cars?
0: Part of the reason that we're so reliant on cars is actually because there's just not been enough public investment in, in our transport infrastructure. And uh, I actually made my notes for this podcast whilst travelling on HS1. I'm in Amsterdam now, which is four hours train by London, and I think it would be remiss of us not to mention HS2, which is, I think as we're speaking, part of it's being uh, scrapped, but in its original and most ambitious form, it would have connected London to Birmingham, Manchester, and Leeds by high-speed rail. and This would have then, in its original form, connected to HS1, meaning you could get a train from Manchester to Paris. So It's now mooted that the government's scrapping the Birmingham to Manchester leg, which I think it's worth dwelling on for a sec because it's not only about reducing high-speed rail capacity but it also scuppers wider plans for what was called the northern powerhouse rail which would have shared a track with hs2 and in general this lack of capacity or reduction in capacity will just put more and more strain on our existing rail networks particularly in the north and i think that is why we are so reliant on cars and we really are so just to bring up some statistics at the end of march 2023 there were 40 million licensed vehicles in the uk that's ticking up by uh, around one percent every year and if you look at the statistics on the mode of transport that we actually use it's it's really really clear so data from the government shows that from 1960 to 2019 the distance traveled by cars increased from 130 billion passenger miles, up to 738 billion. But over that same period, the distance travelled by bus or coach actually declined. It split in half, going from around 78 um, billion to 33 billion. So while distance travelled by car has risen staggeringly since the 1960s, other modes of transport have either stagnated, risen slightly, or in the case of buses, actually fallen Dramatically. So, we are a nation very much reliant on our cars.
1: I mean, bus use has fallen, but that has since the deregulation of buses, right? In London, where buses remained uh, owned and operated by uh, the public sector through Transport for London, bus use ha- has actually massively increased over the same period. And I do wonder whether there's a, a tendency to sort of look at the outcome of quite specific policy changes and say this is just the will of the British people that like British people just want to drive cars more. Whereas in fact, most people are not necessarily desiring to spend more of their lives in small metal boxes. They're just being forced to because the buses have become insanely expensive. The rail networks have either been closed or not built as promised. And you know, what other choices do they have? They don't maybe want to get on their bike because they're afraid of cars. And so they get in a car instead. And I, I kind of, I wonder if there's just an an elaborate piece of spin going on here. I'm not really convinced that Britain... That ordinary British people are just so petrol-headed and motor crazy that all they want is to drive their car uh, as fast as they like through residential areas. But I wonder how you fight this as a culture war because it clearly is an attempt to build a kind of political lobby around the idea of being a car driver or owning a car and and using that as a a sort of identity politics to create a political coalition around. You know, what what, what would you do if you were in charge of kind of campaigning back against... um, the launch
0: of the car lobby. You're absolutely right to, to pick up on the fact that that it is uh, not an inherent part of the, the British public's nature to, to be kind of car loving. And it is a response to a, what I would have called a kind of lack of investment. I think you're also right to bring up Transport for London, which has been hugely successful. And another success story from very recent times is, uh, is in Manchester. So Andy Burnham's just announced a, a new kind of network of buses. I think he's called it the B network and they're bright yellow double-decker buses, just like in London, but yellow. And they are attempting to build a more kind of centralised public transport infrastructure. I think it'll be really interesting to see the result that um, that, that has. What was your actual question to the second part?
1: <laughs> How to, whether to fight the culture war um, or not?
0: I, th- I think it has to be kind of centred on on infrastructure and looking to the future and giving people options to travel in other ways. So I, I, I think it's kind of unfair to target the motorist. Um, I don't think they are on the other side of this um, this battle. I think the go- the government here is trying to create a dividing line between between us. You know, they're trying to split us into two camps: people that use public um, transport and people that that use their cars. I think for a lot of people, they actually don't have much option other than to use their car. So I think in order to kind of bring those people on side, uh, we really just need to create more options. We need to create more public transport options for people and create cycling infrastructure and create walking infrastructure and really kind of prioritize these other modes of transport. If we can frame it in a way that it's about improving people's lives, uh, then I think we can kind of get everybody on board.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, you know, you you can't deny that uh, around LTNs and particularly 15-minute cities, there's been some really wild kind of conspiracy theories rising up. So, you know, the concept of a 15-minute neighbourhood where local shops are within a 15-minute walk of your house, that does sound to me like focusing on the positives. That's like, look at this. We We could create an entire country where every single person is within 15 minutes of essential stuff. Nice local corner shop, decent doctors, maybe a a school or a primary school. That sounds like a really kind of positive campaign. And yet we've seen that become this kind of uh, quite crazy uh, conspiracy theory where people are, are, are worried that the real agenda is to sort of... Lock people within a 15 minute radius of their house, and that it's the sort of start of a kind of highly authoritarian police state in which nobody has the ability to move around beyond their immediate neighborhood. It's not, it's clearly not just enough to focus on the positives uh, of a more pedestrianized, more sort of cyclable version of the UK. Why do you think that? travel has become so divorced from sort of (laughs) evidence-based debate? Why is it it sort of appealing more and more to these kind of really quite fringe uh, theories?
0: I mean, just to to pick up on one part of that and to build on it, the the UK's Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, said earlier this week, what is sinister and what we shouldn't tolerate is the idea that councils should decide how many times you should go to the shops. So he's he's the UK's transport secretary, and he included that kind of language in his speech to Conservative Party conference before obviously going on to add, it's the Conservative Party that is proudly pro-car. Um, I think all of this is very, very dangerous language, and I think you're you're right to say that we should basically just be fact-checking them. So let's be clear on this. There are zero councils out there that want to decide how many times you go to the shops as Mark Harper So it feels a little bit like the kind of conspiracy theory entering the the kind of thinking and and operation uh, of government there. I I think another point to make is that they are um, backing one side here. The government say they are, quote, backing the driver, but this is the government. They shouldn't be backing one section of the population over another. They should be governing for everybody. So they should be fixing potholes. Yes, but they should also be making sure that we have functioning bus network, proper cycling infrastructure, et cetera. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. Given the government itself is making such a big thing out of this, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of this over the next six to 12 months as we we go uh, towards another election.
1: We've just time to look at some cultural events that are coming up in London. There's a few things going on. Open City is cooking up the next installment of the Academy of British Housing. This is a a frankly exceptional program that I've been very lucky enough to to go along to a number of these things. We take a group of people on a kind of minibus trip to some of the best housing schemes of the 20th century. And on Friday, the the 20th of October, uh, we're running another one of those uh, it's where is it going? It's going to the Golden Lane Estate, going inside a flat there, and going around that incredible estate by Chamberlain Powell and Bond. But the the real highlight is going to Ferry Street, which is I think it's one of the best houses I've ever been to. It was developed as a sort of self build scheme on the bank of the River Thames in in the Isle of Dogs, and it will take your breath away. <laughs> it's 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 up there with like Turn End, as as just like. British housing does not get better or more interesting than, than Ferry Street. So I highly recommend that. It's called the Baylight Fellowship, and it's on the Friday, the 20th of October. Tickets are available on the Open City website. We've also putting on a, a debate, part of our Accelerate program. We run these uh, debates at Rich Mix, exploring big issues that relate to kind of equity and access in architecture. This one is an entirely women-led panel. It's called, What Actually Is Feminist Architecture? And we've invited a, a whole Load of speakers who all, in some way, say they just they practice as feminist architects, but have very different interpretations of what that that means. Uh, so we have one of the founders of Matrix, one of the founders of Black Females in Architecture, one of the founders of Edit Collective, and some other speakers as well. Uh, that is not until I think the thirtieth of November, but tickets are, are now available, and it should be really good. Joe, is there anything kind of culturally that you would recommend that's coming up that our listeners should? get along to uh
0: yes it might not be um so kind of london focused but the the retrofit reimagined festival which did take place in london last week but is is basically uh roaming around the country going from bristol this friday to uh birmingham and glasgow as well on a lot of the topics that we've talked about on today's show they'll be diving into them with workshops and and things like that so uh, that's one to look into if you're interested in this kind of stuff um I'm particularly excited about the BFI London Film Festival as well, which kicks off uh, today, I think, and runs for a week. So if you're into film and you live in London, then check that out too.
1: Fantastic. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show again. Please come again uh, soon. Where can our listeners um, follow your work and your campaigning?
0: So I'm uh, dedicating most of my time now to Built by Nature. And Built by Nature is a kind of non-profit which is uh, seeking to increase the use of timber and bio-based materials in construction. We've got a website so you can kind of check out um, lots of the projects that we've supported and that we're involved in on the website from... Um, kind of new design codes for timber buildings to new financing models for timber buildings that kind of stuff we're looking at how to i suppose tweak the the system or change the system uh, to make it easier to build with based materials so yeah go to our website builtbn.org and check it out
1: builtbn.org fantastic joe thank you very much and see you again next time
0: thanks so much for having me on
1: You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early, ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cybertadda and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable.